in the early years of the National Football League, what was once a great and fantastic cultural element of our, of our American society, there was a gentleman by the name of Vince Lombardi who was considered to be one of the great football, player, football players and then eventually a football coach. Um, he quite literally put the city of Green Bay on the map when he was called to be the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. They pulled out a map of Wisconsin, and, and the city wasn't actually on the map. And Vince Lombardi said to his children, it will be on the map by the time that we're done. One of the tactics or the pieces of wisdom that comes out of this particular uh, era of football is that he had had some gains, he had some wins early on, but he had a spirit of winning that was too many unmatched in the league. And one of his particular strategies was to recognize that even though things are going well, even though things are progressing, we're having some wins and even some championships, there was a particular point in his coaching career where he recognized that you really should take nothing for granted. Don't ever take anything for granted. In his book, uh, When Pride Still Mattered, David Moranis writes this about one of the elements of Coach Lombardi's strategy. He writes, he began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He reviewed the fundamentals of blocking and tackling the basic plays, how to study the playbook. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. <laughs> to which Max McGee, from the rear of the squad, delivered the immortal retort, uh, Coach, could you slow down a little? You're going too fast for us. <laughs> this phrase throughout my life has been a clarion call at multiple seasons and stages of the various activities and endeavors that I've been a part of. I even caught myself saying it to somebody recently. This is a football. It is to say in many ways that it really doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how big you become. It doesn't matter how much experience that you actually have. There is something to be said. There is some deep wisdom to be had in identifying the absolute basic fundamentals about who you are, what you're doing here, why you exist, what you're trying to accomplish. So I say on a regular basis in various contexts, this is a football. And we have to identify once again what the football is because Vince Lombardi knew that in any endeavor, in anything that you attempt to try to do, you start off with a very clear mission, a very clear understanding of what it is that I'm signing up for. But along the way, you pick up habits, behaviors, distractions, successes, failures that begin to pull your attentions in all sorts of different ways. And when that begins to happen, you actually lose sight of the most fundamental, the most basic elements of your identity, your purpose, your goal. This is a football. Our series entitled Recreate is Spark's offering of this is a football. Many of you come to Spark because of various ethical issues, whether that be gender issues, ecclesiastical issues, church leadership issues, 
searching for a variety of reasons. And we celebrate and honor every journey, every trajectory, every person, no matter where you come from, how you got here. We're so grateful and thankful. We believe sincerely that God has brought you to us. But this is a football. Why did we start? Who are we? What are we doing here? Why do we exist? For us, it is summed up in one simple phrase, inspiring people to live the way of Jesus, as codified, as exemplified in our five values, love, reputation, reconciliation, rescue, and resurrection. This is it. If you ever question or wonder, what are we doing here? Why am I a part of this team? Why am I setting up chairs? Why did I join this? Why am I a part of anything with Spark? This is it. This is a football, my friends. And it is designed intentionally to be simple. Not much more complicated than that. And everything else that we do, whether whatever it is that we discuss, the conversations that we have, the ethical issues that we tackle, is all grounded in this one thing. Our football. We're trying to figure out what does it mean and how does this work to live the way of Jesus as exemplified in our five values. This is actually not a new idea, the idea that you simplify things down to their core essential basics. Many of you have heard us tell the story of an old rabbi named Hillel back in the first century who was once asked, hey, Hillel, can you summarize the entire Torah? Like, there's a lot of pages, there's a lot of words, there's a lot of commandments, there's a lot that's in this book. Can you summarize it? Can you distill it down into this one thing? He is famous for having said this phrase, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation of this. Go and study it. That is it. You want to know what Genesis is all about? What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Do you want to know what Exodus is all about? What is hateful to you, do not do to your Do you want to know what Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges said? Do you want to know what all of that? This is it. I would like to suggest to you, my friends, that in accordance with Jesus, who, by the way, this sounds, might sound familiar to you, some sort of iteration of the golden rule, that our simple statement is, you want to know what this whole thing's about? Live the way of Jesus through our values. That's the whole aspect. Now, everything else is just commentary. Everything else is just explanation. We're trying to go and study how does this live and work out in our world, in every sphere, every circle of our life. So in your individual life, in your relationships, in your work, in our nation, in the world. And our endeavor during this time, as Danielle started us from last week, and as we lead up to what we still can't believe is our ninth anniversary of existence. As we are working our way, our intention, our hope, and our goal is to master this fundamental. One thing. If, you, if, if anybody ever asks you, so what is Spark about? I hope that sincerely, and not just like rote recitation, but sincerely you answer, well, we're a group of people who are trying to figure out how to live the way of Jesus. That's really it. And everything else is just explanation or commentary or some sort of explanation or der derivation of this. Because the rest is just commentary. So our series, Recreate, is getting back to these particular fundamentals. And to ask the question, what is our football? Last week, Danielle talked about the first value, which is love. Today, I'm going to talk about the second value, uh, which is reconciliation. It's actually a third, at least in our order. Pastor Mark's going to cover reputation next week reconciliation now again 
this is our football. We, we went back to Genesis chapter 1 because we're grounding ourselves in the fundamental story that out of chaos, God created and did something beautiful and wonderful. Now, why is this important? Because Genesis 1 and 2 essentially form the framework, the, 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 the picture, the image of what it is that we're trying for, what it is that we're aiming for, what it is, what I said uh, a couple years ago, what it is that we're reaching for. Every single one of us have an ache, a pain, a frustration, a disappointment, some sort of angst against the injustice of the world, some sort of disappointment or frustration about how relationships are working and how they're not thriving in the way that they're supposed to be. And we fight against that because we're trying to reach back to the way it was supposed to be in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So every time you make an endeavor and every time you make an effort to try to fix or solve something, what you are essentially doing is reaching for what is we call the tree of life. The tree of Genesis is there to show us what life was like and is supposed to be like and is the image in the picture of the thing that we're trying to reach for. Now, at the very end of our story, we're going to just cover the whole thing is the thing that we're also hoping for. If you've ever had the hope or the expectation that someday things are going to get better, someday all of this stuff is going to go away, someday there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more shadows because the light of the Lord will be our light. Physics is actually going to change. All the pain and the suffering is going to go away. That's coming someday in the future. Yeah, that's in our story too. We are reaching for that tree and if you read closely in Revelation 21 and 22, there is actually an image and a picture of the tree of life whose leaves are there for the healing of the nations, the restoration of the created order. And so bookending our story at the very beginning, at the very end, are trees of life, the very things that we are reaching for, the very things that we are hoping for, the very things that we wish would live right here. And if you've ever been disappointed about that, that's understandable because where are you? Where are you? Where are we right now in this story, in this narrative? Where are we? We're right here. We're in between. We're, we're not there. We're not quite at the end. We're not quite at the culmination. We're not quite there when everything's going to be beautiful. And we're definitely not back there where it was. We're right here in the middle. And this is part of the reason why reconciliation is so critically important because we're trying to manifest the tree of life from Genesis and the tree of life of Revelation right here and right now because we live respectfully between the trees. Does that mean that things are hope, hopeless? Things that there's no way? Well, no. Because in our story, in our grand narrative, there's actually another tree there. And if you read carefully about the story of Jesus, the third tree is the cross. The very word that's used for cross in our gospel narratives and in the, gospel, uh, and in the book of Acts is the very word for tree. And so what we see is this tree of life theme over and over and over again. And so our endeavor, our hope, our encouragement, our good news is that if you're reaching for that tree way back there or reaching for that tree way in the future, there is actually a third tree that you can reach for. And that's right here, right now in the person of Jesus. This is why living the way of Jesus is the very best, the closest thing that we can do in order to get to either Genesis or to Revelation. It is the model. It is the way in which the very best of humanity and the very best of life can be exemplified. It is in Jesus that we see the full redemption, 
the full reconciliation, the fullness of God's love, the fullness of God's rescue. It's in Jesus that we see that. And so if we were to somehow miraculously, wildly live after that way, maybe, just maybe, we could bring a little bit of Genesis and Revelation to here and now. That's the hope. That's the story in which we're grounded in. That's our football. That's what we're trying to do. Are we perfect at it? No, far from it. But we work and we strive and we continue to push forward in this ethic. Gentlemen, ladies, this is a football. This is what we're going for. That's our aim. And so when we write things like this about reconciliation and love, it is rooted and grounded in that grand narrative and story and that hope. Our existence, our existence consists of three main relationships. Our connection with God, it's the upward relationship. Our community with one another, our lateral relationship with each other here. And our care of the creation, which is our world around us. Therefore, in our attitudes and behaviors, we want to heal broken spirits, mend broken relationships, create harmony with those we have differences and distinctions, and reconnect the soul with the creator, to the creator. We embrace and work towards racial and cultural reconciliation. We also value religious and ideological education between Christians, Jews, and Muslims with believers and non-believers alike. And we have those passages referenced there because we see this movement towards reconciliation woven all throughout the story. God is drawing all people to God's self, and we are in partnership with that reconciliation in and through our very lives. Therefore, being smart means becoming both restored and a restorer, healed and a healer, mended and a mender, comforted and a comforter, all in being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, the ultimate reconciler. There are moments when I read our values. I do that on a regular basis to remind myself what our football is. And in preparation, I was reading through and I just wanted to stop at each phrase. Heal broken spirits. Every week, people gather in this space, send an email or a text or a call to connect with another one to express, I'm just broken right now. The events that have happened, news that I got, some events in my life, and I just feel, ah. And so part of reconciliation for us is to, to bring healing to that. Sometimes the brokenness is, I really jacked up. I really screwed up. I really need to own my own sin, my own depravity, my own way of going about breaking or hurting someone else. Well, our, our existence isn't, to say, yeah, you're right, you really did, oh man, yeah, you really screwed that one up. Our existence, our football is to say, no, we want to heal that. that. That's our goal. That's what reconciliation is. So each of these particular phrases. Um, you, I just felt like we could spend a whole time just on each one of those elements and each one of those stories. For us, it's coming home to God. You could consider reconciliation a coming home to God. Like, 
if you've ever felt like God has rejected you or you've rejected God or you felt disconnected from the greater spirit of what God is doing, you can come home again. Restoring broken relationships. If you've ever felt like something doesn't work between you and another person, well, that's what we're here for. That's what the whole gospel is about, to reconcile that. You can find common ground with people who have ideological differences, different beliefs, different perspectives, different ways of viewing the world. Guess what? That person's way of viewing the world might actually be a blessing to my way of viewing the world. We need to reconcile those ideas. Reconnecting with creation, a huge theme in our particular era and our, our time and space where our disconnection with the globally created ecological system of which we're a part of is wreaking havoc upon our world and no one no one is going to be exempt from this so reconciliation for us is also reconnecting our humanity with the greater creation of what God has done comforting broken hearts healing the wounds of injustice the Greek word for reconciliation is katalasso you know this prefix kata because you see it all over the place the word Catholic means into or according to the whole Cataclysm is into or according to a deluge or a destruction. And catalog is into or according to an order. So this word kata translates itself into multiple words in our English into or according to. It's a way of making reference to the thing. So katalaso, the Greek word for reconciliation, is into or according to what? It is into and according to another reconciliation if if catholic is into or according to something that is whole and we bring that wholeness into our being then katalaso reconciliation is into another person or according to someone else and we recognize and we bring that wholeness into ourselves as well not only other people but other ideas we have talked about reconciliation before in multiple strains reconciling the idea of heaven and earth we have an idea of heaven up there, earth down here, never the twain shall meet. One day we're going to leave here and go to there. Well, part of reconciliation for us in theology is to actually bring those two together in accordance with the other. Earth is now understood into and according with heaven, and heaven is understood into and according with earth. They are somehow together as one. Reconciliation can take place in your own humanity. Have you ever, ever felt like you were two people? Like you said one thing, but then you acted another way. Have you ever felt one thing, but then felt a completely different way the next day? You treated one person in one way, and then you treated another person in a different way? Reconciliation in many ways takes the form of recognizing that both of those things are a part of who we are. And that everything about who you are may actually be a blessing and a curse, and they flip-flop sometimes. Introverts are an incredible blessing. Thoughtfulness, study, solitude. But they're also an incredible dysfunction at times, lacking social cues and understanding of where <laughs> I'm only speaking about myself at this particular moment. <laughs> Extroverts are incredible at connecting, understanding, participating, but yet the intricacies and the intimacies of what these things, reconciliation brings all this together. Reconciliation could mean recognizing that the way in which we've split our universe between nature and nurture actually doesn't exist. 
Nature and nurture are not two separate categories, but two different terms to describe the same reality. Reconciliation can also mean a, a recognition that the way in which we even process and think about the world needs to also come together. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in his brilliant book, The Great Partnership, talks about science and religion and the search for meaning as they are actually two sides of the same coin. Reconciliation for us at the very beginning of Spark was a recognition that there was a damage that was done between the Christian and the Jewish communities. If you take a look at throughout history and understand what Christians have said and done to Jews throughout history, you recognize that there is a brokenness that needs to be mended there. And so for us, reconciliation meant bridging that divide and listening to one another and finding joint common ground and finding where our stories actually weave themselves in the same direction in the same place. And can we just say simply, even stating out loud and recognizing that the Jesus we follow was 100% Jewish. He was a first century Jew. So let's recognize that and pull all of those stories together. I remember a friend of mine saying that that's one of the great scandals for both Jews and Christians to find out that Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> and then we live in Silicon Valley and there are moments when various tech companies can come together and does anybody not recognize get a Mac, Mac and PC? Anyway, this, I went back and watched a whole bunch of these in preparation for this, so I had a good time. Apparently, there's a YouTube video with all 66 commercials all woven into one. For those of you who don't know, this is Mac PC. It was a huge campaign by Apple entitled Get a Mac, and it was basically a kind slight to PC and Windows world. But even in Silicon Valley, there are stories and moments where competing companies and competing ideologies can actually probably come together and recognize and find out that the whole or the two together can actually make some amazing products and amazing progress. And so I went through all of that because when I was thinking about this, I, there wasn't one thing that I could narrow down on. Reconciliation for us is all of that and more. It is a recognition that this world, our minds, our hearts, separate things into categories. They take things apart. They break things. And what it is that we are trying to do in the ethic of Jesus is to recognize that the brokenness and the separateness of that, the disconnection of all of that, is not ultimately what the Genesis to Revelation story is about. Rather than breaking things apart, separating, categorizing, bifurcating everything away, what we're trying to do is actually bring it all together into one cohesive whole. Because that is who God is. Did not God make the entire world and the entire universe? If you need an image for this, this is the image that comes to mind. The way in which we progress through this world... The way in which we humans through our depravity work is to break things all the time. But our job or our hope or our value is to take all of those broken pieces and put them back together the way they were designed to be so that we can be the light that we were called to be. So that light can shine upon us and therefore we can then be that light to the world. That's it. That's our foot. It's very simple. Wherever you see brokenness, try to pull it back together. Wherever you see 
disintegration try to reintegrate wherever you see relationships torn asunder ideologies that separate and bifurcate and demonize and scold and find contemptuousness in others we try to bring that together and recognize no matter where you might happen to be on the political ideological religious spectrum we together through christ find life in bringing it all together and and can i can i uh complain about one thing one of the things i don't like about this all of what i just said is it sounds really good but it's predicated on this thing right here it's the re it's the again in other words we're gonna have to do this again and again and again and again and again and again and again this is one thing that I'm really frustrated about, actually. I'm still, I'm reaching for those trees. Like, in my heart and my soul, I'm like, I just, honestly, I don't want to do it again. Like, if, as many years as I've lived, I don't want to have to go once again into a broken situation, try to bring home. It's really, honestly, exhausting and tiring. But that's when I reach to that third tree. And ask myself the question, that is that really do i just give up is that the answer to no longer participate in this redemptive move and i look at jesus and then i say oh yeah okay jesus didn't give up maybe that's enough for me that's our football if you would permit me i'd like to shift gears really quickly without using a clutch and Ask this one question. Why? Why is it that we do that? Why is it that I'm going to have to continually go over reconciliation over and over again? Why are we going to have to revisit this over and over and over again? Because for me, and this is Kevin, you're, you're now just going to, you're going to be very nice people and just journey with me through my thinking a little bit. If I can get to this why, it'll help me understand how to do this reconciliation work again and again and again. For me, understanding the deep realities of our world has been a salvific turn for me. So I'd like to ask the question, why? Why do we keep splitting things apart? Why do we keep finding categories in which to put you in and categories to put me in so that I can fight against you? Why is it that I hold certain ideas of higher value than other ideas? Why is it that I think introverts are far superior than extroverts? Why do I keep doing this? What's going on? I'd like to propose to you, one of the answers might come from a story from September 14th, 1848. A gentleman by the name of Phineas Gage, many of you might know this gentleman, was working on a railroad. And part of the development in the construction of railroads at that time was to put in gunpowder into various holes, blow up rocks so you could set the way for the rocks. One particular day on this day, September 14th, Phineas Gage was a foreman, 25-year-old, working on one of those holes. He had a tamping iron, about 3 foot 7 inches, approximately 13 pounds, where he was pounding in the gunpowder into the hole in which to make the explosion. One particular gentleman distracted his attention he turned his head slightly to the right and somehow his tamping iron had hit the rock 
to ignite a spark, and he had not yet set the sand down in the gunpowder. The gunpowder exploded and shot this three-foot, seven-inch tamping iron up through his cheek. Sorry if you're sque squeamish. Up through his cheek, behind his eye, out the front of his head, and landed approximately 50 yards away. At that particular moment, the gentleman around him obviously came to his aid to try to ask the question, are you okay? He fell back, after several minutes gathered himself, got up, sat up and began speaking. And he asked, did the explosion go off? <laughs> Gentlemen put him on a cart, took him to the hospital, and a variety of events happened, consecutive doctors, medical officers, etc., began taking a look at Phineas and began doing some inspections. And one of the reports that I read was fascinating. Indeed, a doctor by the name of John Harlow examined him, and the first thing he said, yes, we can confirm that there was a hole in Phineas Gage's head. That hole punctured through, and there's some gory details that you can read, and they were actually expecting him to die because who survives a hole in your head? They actually constructed a coffin preparing to lay him to rest. And day after day after day, through a variety of events, he began to get better. He began to recover. And the hole in his head eventually began to heal up. John Harlow, in his report, passage of an iron bar through the head, which is <laughs> arguably the most creative title for a medical paper ever, accounts the day-by-day -day recovery of Phineas Gage. And... One of the fascinating characteristics of this story is what happened to Phineas as he began to recover. He had all his faculties. He had actually all of his memory. He was able to function continually in his job. But something distinctly different also happened to him as well. This is what John Harlow writes. The equilibrium or balance, so to speak, between his intellectual faculties and animal propensities seems to have been destroyed. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, at times pertinaciously obstinate, yet capricious and vacillating, devising many, many plans of future operation which are no sooner arranged then they are abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible. A child in his intellectual capacity and manifestations, he has the animal passions of a strong man. In other words, something began to happen to Phineas Gage's personality and how he acted, how he worked, lived. Um, previous to his injury, though untrained in the schools, he possessed a well-balanced mind, was looked upon by those who knew him as a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation. In this regard, his mind was radically changed so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage. This particular story, Phineas, was, has been revisited over the decades in various scans, 3D modeling, even after he was buried and passed away 12 years later, his skull was exhumed to do this analysis. And many have suggested 
that it was this particular case and Phineas Gage's personality changes that began to initiate a whole new era of neuroscience. Now, let me just state, I clearly am not a neuroscientist, and I would appeal, obviously, to experts in the field. But from what I understand from the literature is that this was the beginning of a new understanding of our human brain, of their various parts and how they work, and locating various personality traits, executive functioning, and then we have what we have today known as the limbic system and the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex and all these various understandings. But it was here that we began to go into that new level of understanding. And what happened with Phineas, at least for a season, and there's all sorts of different ways in which you can interpret the literature, the damage that happened in his frontal cortex began to dissociate portions of his personality from the rest of his operations. What was once together as one became separate as two, which caused a delinquency or some sort of deterioration of how Phineas Gage actually lived and worked and related with other people. Through this time, multiple people have then done additional studies, finding tumors in a portion of the brain called the corpus callosum. Some people have suggested uh, recognizing that those patients who had seizures had diminished seizures in that particular part of the brain began performing what's known as split brain operations. They would take a portion of the brain, which is called the corpus callosum, which is the connective tissue between the two hemispheres, and they would split those. They would cut it in order to cause the patient to no longer have seizures. But those split brain patients, and you can, this is incredibly fascinating literature, started to exhibit behaviors as if these people were manifesting two completely different selves. There's one story of a woman who's wanting to get dressed, reaches with her right hand for a dress, who had this split brain, and her left hand, without her knowing it, grabs a different dress. And her personality, with something within her brain, is having a conflict as to, no, I want this, no, I want this. It was almost as if there was two different people inside competing for the one. What we have discovered since this time is that our brains are billions of intricate connections between very diverse ways of functioning and they are deeply interconnected and inter intertwined. Now the whole idea of a left brain and right brain is something that's been considered a myth, but there are particular elements that we can understand. For example, our right hand essentially is being governed by our left brain and our left hand is being governed by our right brain. And this is an oversimplification. I know somebody is gonna fact check me on this. But there are some things that we can understand. What causes us to operate and work well is the interconnection between the two. Which, by the way, if that happens to be true, then only left-handed people are truly in their right minds. Michael Gazzaniga is one of the prime neuroscientists who have done these particular studies. And it's just fascinating to see how the same person with their left brain will be able to see the word ring but because their, their right brain is controlling their left hand, they will actually pick up a key instead and not know what it is that they're picking up. This is, again, there's tons of literature on this. It's really, really fascinating. This, by the way, reminded me of this passage from Matthew 6, 3. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. 
so that your alms may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's something about this verse that is incredibly profound to me, understanding a split brain. Now, obviously this is much more complicated. I'm not a neuroscientist. I just kind of geek out about this whenever I get an opportunity. But there are other philosophers and neuroscientists who have written and have suggested and thought that what we're finding about our neurology is actually incredibly informative, incredibly insightful for why it is that we split our universe so much. In his book, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, Ian McGilchrist has written this. My thesis is that for us as human beings, there are two fundamentally opposed realities, two different modes of experience that each of us is ultimate that each is of ultimate importance in bringing about the recognizably human world and that their difference is rooted in the bi-hemispheric structure of the brain. It follows that the hemispheres need to cooperate. But I believe they are in fact involved in a sort of power struggle and that this explains many aspects of contemporary Western culture. That, my friends, and I'm sorry I'm geeking out about this, fascinates me to no end. Why is it that sometimes I'm kind and compassionate and loving and I can, I can empathize with another and then at another moment I just don't care? Why is it at some particular points I can see the big picture and then at other times I don't see the big picture at all and I get so just distracted with the minutiae and the details? What is it about ourselves, how God has created us, that has put two various, disparate, different, distinct ways of operating in this world into our one single head and brain? This, to me, fascinates me to no end. Why is it that at moments in prayer and in spiritual disciplines, you feel a sense of God's presence and love, and at other times you feel so distant as if God was just merely an abstract principle, some sort of mathematical cold calculation. Why is it that we have these experiences? What is it about us that causes us to split all of these things? Why is it that I must think that our humanity is purely DNA, purely nature, purely ones and zeros, purely information, and at other times I feel like our humanity is transcendent and supernatural and ethereal and something magical happens when you hug another person, when you dine with another person, and it's not math, it's something completely otherworldly. Why do we do this? I would suggest to you, my friends, that there is something very, very fundamental, real, true, profound about this reality. That inside each and every one of our heads is a competition of different ideas, different realities. And the reason, the reason why this world works the way it is, and the reason why God has created us with that is because rather than splitting it apart, the endeavor of our tradition and our story and our theology and our philosophy is to bring it all back together again. To recognize that I need, I am an introvert. I need extroverts in my life. I'm extremely intellectual and heady. None of you at Spark will ever know that. 
like I, like somebody tells me it's like well that was like an 8.9 on the academic scale for a sermon okay i get it i need people in my life who are deeply personal and relational if i were to live only in the half of my brain that i feel most comfortable with my life is poorer as a result my identity my identity in my race my gender my worldview my status in this world my economic status is one way in which i can i need somebody else of a different gender of a different race of a different culture of a different economic status to inform the worldview that i have and if i do not open my life and my mind and my thinking up to somebody else who does not think the same way i do who does not process the same my life is poor because of it because the entirety of what god is doing in this world the intention is to bring it all together there is no rich or poor there is no wealthy or unwell there's no intelligent or non-intelligent there is a global humanity that god has created we need to recognize that god is also not split in two this painting that you've been staring at is one of the most famous paintings of in the world art it is the entitled the creation of adam various art critics have looked and examined this for those of you in my wednesday night group this will be familiar there's something about god god is reaching out creating adam and then you can have all these discussions and debates about what is going on over here but one of the things that someone pointed out to me that i can no longer unsee is that god is wrapped in some sort of fabric and enclosure and encasing that is shaped vaguely in a shape that is familiar to people who understand human anatomy and once you see this for me i can't unsee it it is almost as if michelangelo who was himself deeply fascinated with the human anatomy understood that how we relate to god how we understand spirituality how we engage is somehow connected with how we in our humanity in our brains process information how we think our cognition now this is not at all some sort of deprecating statement about how god is simply made up in our minds which some people have done this is to recognize that our minds and how we process and how we understand the fullness of who god is is deeply interconnected there is a dynamic relationship once again between the divine and between our biology the separation once again that we've had now should come into so this is our football my friends we're trying to bring it all together we're trying to make the broken world come back together as one why is it that we keep doing this well my proposal my proposition my provocation is that there's something about us that keeps wanting to split things apart and part of what we need to recognize in this ethic of reconciliation is that inside this brain of ours all of it the fullness of it is the image of god and when i meet another brain who doesn't think or process the way that i do i want to reconcile with that brain because inside that brain is also the fullness of god and everything about who i am there's a part of the fullness of god that is there in addition all of what we're trying to do redemption rescue love it all comes all of that comes when we recognize that everything about our cognition 
needs to come together as one. Rather than trying to split ourselves into two and say, well, I'm going to be spiritual here, or I'm going to be this here. No. When the whole part of who I am comes together as one, this is when love happens. When the fullness of my analytical self can deploy itself on the problems of the world, but my empathetic self can also reach out and feel the pain of another person. And I would commend to you, my friends, suggest to you that our faith is, in essence, a full reconciliation of our full selves that manifests in the reconciliation of the world. That if we want to be reconciled even to ourselves and even within ourselves, we must recognize and love and accept the fullness of who we are. Part of the challenge of our humanity and our psychology, and I know that every single one of us probably suffers from this, is there's a part of us that we hate. There's a part of us that's deeply insecure about who we are. There's a part of us that wish just this part of me would go away. There's a part of me that doesn't like this aspect of who I am and who God has created me to be in that sense. If that could just go away, I would feel better about myself. So in many ways, the faith of recognizing that you are created in the image and likeness of God, if we're going to reach out and reconcile the entire world, part of it starts with you, the fullness of who you are, all of you, every aspect of how you think, of how you process the fullness of your body, the fullness of your cognition, the fullness of your brain, the fullness of your life is beautiful and created in the image of God. And we start there and pulling ourselves together, recognizing us as one. And that's what reaches out to the reconciliation of the world. Reconciliation means an embrace of all, all of who we are and therefore a reintegration of all of our parts with each other. I, this process for me in prep, preparing this message was been, has been to be, okay, what are those parts of me that I really hate, disdain, or try to push away? How is that also part of who I am, how God has made me to be? How can I pull all this together? One of the main ways in which this is um, really, really critically important in my mind is the separation between humanity and creation. We have grown up under a philosophy and a theology that has suggested that humanity is somehow special and separate from the rest of the created world that has led itself into a kind of cognitive Western world that says that the nature is just there for us to extract from. But part of the reconciliation that can happen when we recognize Genesis is to say, actually, that tree, and this isn't to get spooky and new agey, but that tree has also been created by God. The grass has been created by God. The atmosphere has been created. The entirety. We are part of the whole of creation. And so our damage that we're doing to our planet is once again a fracturing of the wholeness that God was originally intended. Last thing, I'll ask Junior to come up and lead us. This is ultimately grounded in the thing that we say every single week when we come to the most important commandment, which is this. Hear, O Israel, those of you who wrestle and struggle with God, the Lord is our God. There is only one Lord, not a separate God, one God. And that oneness is the thing that we are striving for. Reconciliation is a recognition and a declaration, a commitment to that one God who created every single aspect of you, every single relationship that you have, every single part of your job, your vocation, your calling, every aspect of your ecology and your environment, your world. That's the one God. That, my friends, 
is our football. There's only one God. We do not need to split this God into two. And it is our hope that as we come together every single week and as we continue to push forward, if you ever feel as if your world is divided, your life is divided, your mind is divided, your relationships are broken, your calling, your vocation feels fractured, things are not matching the way they're supposed to match. It is our hope that as we gather together and sing together and commune together, that you start to feel all those pieces come back together again as one to live out the fullness of who God has intended and created you to be. And that's what we do every time we come together in communion. For in this meal is the fullness of that message, the fullness of that good news, the fullness of the way. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper... He took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is, my, this, is, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, as we sing, I invite you to the table. Come and take communion, the body and the blood of Christ, which is broken and shed for you. And as you ingest the elements, feel and sense once again that you are becoming one with Christ, reconciled to him, once again.